I never walk up with a bottle of water. I don't know why I did it that time, except my throat was hoarse from singing. And those last two lines were so perfect because uh, I kept thinking, Lord, that's what I've tried to do, and I owe so much to you in my life, especially when I think of the people in my life. I don't know if you ever do that, but I'm sure you, like me, you take inventory of your life from time to time. And a part of that inventory is all the people that would be in your life because of Jesus Christ and not in your life without Jesus Christ. And two of those people, uh, without their permission and against their will, I wanted to project just for a moment to thank them because they're moving to Arizona. This is their last Sunday. If you see them, I'm sure you want to give them a, a special hug. Uh, we've got their new address uh, available, but these two have been a part of Grace 33 years. I was hardly even born 33 <laughs> years ago, and they've been a part of this church that whole time. And uh, amazingly, uh, we have been together the last 18. I was called very young to the ministry. And uh, they are just a wonderful couple, and they... Uh, they have been very dear, not only to me, but I know to you. So I wanted to take a moment and praise the Lord for great people in our, in our life because of Jesus Christ. Uh, yeah. Before we read Revelation 2, 1 through 7, I just want to give a, uh, if I can, a, a quick word of introduction. I'm going to try to do this even quicker. Um, there's so much to talk about when we get to Revelation, but I wanted to talk about the pattern of these messages. There are seven messages, as you know. I want to talk quickly about the pattern, about the route, again, of these messages in this letter uh, of Revelation. And then uh, I want to highlight also the solemn pronouncement um, just for a moment and uh, a couple of the things that it clarifies before we read the Scripture. Uh, the first thing is the pattern of this message in Revelation 2, verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to project it. It is in your notes uh, within your bulletin, so you don't have to write it down. But this pattern is pretty much, well, I wouldn't even call it a pattern if it weren't a pattern in each of the messages. And although there are slight variations, it's important to note that pattern. And instead of me trying to characterize them, I like to rely on the actual wording. So every message begins with, as you can see projected behind me or in your notes, to the angel of the church community in or at and the name of the city. In this case, it's in verse 1a. And then a solemn pronouncement of Jesus exalted, and if you were with us last week in Revelation chapter 1, beginning in verse 10, and the vision itself is in 13 through 20, uh, John sees the exalted Jesus Christ, and it is he in this vision who, like a son of man, says to John, write these things down, and when he turns to see who is speaking to him, he sees Jesus, 
like a son of man, in the midst of seven candle stands, which represent the churches, and in his right hand are seven stars, and those are both explained in verse 20 of chapter 1. Well, here, uh, the solemn pronouncement in, in 1b is going to be repeated in each of the messages, bringing out a different feature of, of Jesus as we were introduced to him in chapter 1. The solemn pronouncement is basically this. In, in Greek, it, you could miss it, and our translations don't do a very good job of bringing out the solemnity of this. Um, it's very short. This is how it would sound roughly in Greek, tada lagi. And it occurs 350 times in the Greek Bible of the Old Testament, in other words, the Greek translation of the Hebrew, which so many first Christians read because they were all, they had a common language in Greek. And 350 times it occurs. 320 of the 350 times it occurs, we hear it this way, thus says the Lord. It occurs seven times in Revelation. Can you imagine where? In the seven letters, the seven messages. And each time it introduces this solemn statement, or I'm calling it solemn because of these words. In effect, thus says the Lord. So I wanted you to appreciate that. Um, every message says, I know. In other words, uh, Jesus says, I know, that's how the solemn pronouncement begins, and he says, uh, I know this. The word I know is derived from a root verb, which means I see, and Jesus sees everything that's going on in his churches. That's kind of the foundation. In other words, he recognizes what their needs are, and he recognizes how they need to be corrected, and he recognizes what they're doing well, and he commends that. And we see that in each of the messages. He says the words, and you'll notice I've got them in uh, quotation marks, but I have this against you. Uh, that's one way of putting it. Quite literally, it is, I have against you that... And in this first message, for example, it would read, I have against you that you have lost the love you had at first. See how that works? So I wanted you to appreciate that. And then it will close with a couple of statements. Everyone who has ears, well, that's how we think it should read. And it, in, in effect, idiomatically it does, but literally it says, everyone who has an ear, let that one hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, that's the way everyone ends, and then there's an assurance, and each assurance is kind of tailored, just like the introduction is tailored to the different situations of the churches. Um, the route of the letter, I wanted to remind you again that 
there you can see Patmos. Looks a little blurry to me. Is it just my glasses or does it look blurry to you? Okay, good. Um, from Patmos, the, the letters would go to Ephesus, which is the first church, and that's what we're going to look at today. It would then go north, a little bit east to Smyrna, and then on to Pergamum, and it would make its way around in that order. And with that in mind, you notice there are, there are actually seven cities there, and we'll be referring to them, and I'll be talking about some of the specifics that we are aware of through archaeological uh, archaeology and, and writings and different things about life in those cities and how it illumines our understanding of the messages. But I want you to appreciate that these messages, each of the churches are invited to read the other's mail. And when it says, hear what the Spirit says, you may have picked up on this, but it says, hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural, not just to your church, but to the other six. And that squares with the number of churches, seven. Seven is a very important numeral in the book of Revelation, and it is numerologically and the way John uses it, uh, a, a number that signifies completeness or perfection. And so here, the seven, uh, we can see, even from the way in which the messages are constructed themselves and how they are called to compare and contrast, to correct and to emulate one another, uh, that the pattern of seven representing the completeness or representation here in these messages of Christ's message to the church. And in the overall book of Revelation, the, the revelation has to do with preparing the church to shine bright in its testimony to the truth. This is part of the war that God will wage not only for the redemption of the world, but also the judgment of the world. And that is why being a lampstand, the seven lampstands, it's important for us to appreciate in each of these messages that a lampstand does not produce the light. It holds the light up. It elevates the light. It maintains the light but it doesn't produce the light. On the other hand, it can oppose the light that it's supposed to illumine in various ways, even when it doesn't wish to, if it doesn't maintain the light and perform its role as a lampstand. And that's why even at the end of this letter, Jesus will say to the church of Ephesus, if you do not repent, I'm going to move your lampstand. In other words, and this is a challenge to all of us, pastors too, especially. And we're never going to feel like we shine brightly enough in the sense that we magnify his light. But we must keep in mind that this is why 
we don't exist as the church at all. We can call ourselves the church, but we do not exist as the church if we do not uphold the light, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the very ground and being. I mean, nobody, he's my redeemer. He's your redeemer. I have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These are realities that we share in him. And we share a common fund of truth that's very, very important. So let me just uh, read then these verses. And I, I see I'm already starting to... Uh, I'm already starting to advocate this passage. That's another word for preach. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who hold the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. That's the beginning of this solemn pr pronouncement. Hear the words, or thus says the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand. I know your works, verse 2, your toil and your patient endurance. You, if you ask the question, if you pay attention or slow down and think about what you read, I'm not trying to be condescending, I'm trying to help you be a better reader. This is a good translation. It says, I know your works. And we ask, what are works? Well, the answer comes in the very next statement. Your toil and your patient endurance. See, that's the two different perspectives or explanations of the works. I know your works, your toil, and your endurance. Okay? Very important. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. That's where the toil is expended right there in the balance of verse 2. And then in verse 3, we have an amplification of the endurance. I know you are endure, enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. See, you've, it's exhausting, but you remain loyal. Verse 4, but I have this against you, that... You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, here's the remedy. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. So that's pretty important, right? You cease to be a lampstand. You, you cease to represent the truth if you do not repent. That puts a premium on love, doesn't it? Somewhere along the line, Jesus solemnly communicates to them, somewhere along the line, you have lost your love that you did it first. And he says, if you don't correct this, if you don't make some adjustments, then I'm going to remove your lampstand because 
Without love, you do not truly represent me. Do you think that's a fair conclusion based on what we read here? Would he move? Would he threaten? I mean, I know we, we as parents sometimes, I can remember, well, I, I've seen parents do this. I don't know that I ever did. But, you know, sometimes we, we inflate our threats because we want our kids to fall in line. We don't want to be bothered, you know. But this is not an idle threat. This is a very important one, and I hope it helps us to appreciate that we must return to our first love. And the context of this is set forth in what the Lord knows, what I have against you, and what he has to say about overcoming. So let me talk about these things as quickly as I can. I already mentioned that the works, he says, uh, I know your works. There's a kind of a subtle commendation there. You know, if somebody says, I saw that, good job. Or singles you out for something that you do, makes you feel good. And you think, that's, that's something I should do all the time. He saw what I did there. She saw what I did there. And they liked that. He says, I know your works. And he emphasizes two things. He says, your toil. The word toil can also be translated labor. It is a word that occurs frequently in the New Testament. The noun is just, we pronounce it kopos, kopos, but it always carries a sense of almost to the point of exhaustion. Um, we don't use labor all the time. I mean, if you, if you say, I, I've been laboring, I think that kind of communicates, wow, that's been hard work, hasn't it? There's what we call toil involved. Um, when, when a woman gives birth to a child, they call it labor. And I haven't had a child, but I've been up and close on a couple, and uh, yeah, it is, it's labor. So this toil is, uh, in fact, there are many, many verses, but let me draw your attention just to one, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, where Paul talks a little bit about labor. Uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 12, and we labor working with our own hands. There you get a picture of the labor. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. There's a, kind of a nice comparison between toil and endurance. And in, in this case, Jesus singles out the Ephesians for their works because they toil. And what do they toil in? Well, he says, uh, uh, you toil in exposing false teaching and you aren't duped by people who come in and try to 
uh, fake you out or lead you astray like false prophets or false apostles. That was the work itself, and that involved toil. Let me just give you a thought that might help you to appreciate that. When we went through 1 Corinthians, and even if you weren't uh, with us for much of that series, if you know anything about 1 Corinthians, it begins and highlights that there is a lot of partisanship between the members of the church of Corinth. Some follow Apollos, some follow Paul, some name the name of Jesus, and it creates strife within the congregation. There's no harmony or unity. And people are at each other. Oh, you follow the wrong person. No, you follow the wrong person. Have you ever been in a situation where people are bickering over what's right and what's wrong, who's right and who's wrong, what's the truth and what isn't the truth? It's not a pretty sight. Now, just imagine, Paul, if you read 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, those letters represent just a piece of his labor, his hard work, his toil with the Corinthians to help them on to bigger and better understanding of their relationship with one another and in Jesus Christ. Makes sense? But you can begin to imagine how much effort was involved when you get in, have you, do you have teenagers? Have you gotten in the middle of, say, brothers and sisters as parents? Boy, there's a lot of toil there trying to, I'm sorry, maybe I'm just speaking about my own household, but back in the day, some those memories. Well, anyway, that might help you when he says, your labor, you've toiled. Then he talks about endurance, and this isn't just grim resignation. Uh, man, I'll, I don't have anywhere else to go, so I'm going to hang in there. But this is, this is really a, a courageous staying power under pressure, under the, the Greek word in Revelation is thlipsis, which comes from thlibo, which means to press or squeeze. And it's translated tribulation. In fact, it comes from the Latin, the Latin tribulare, which means to press or squeeze. That's a very vivid image of tri tribulation or persecution. And someone who endures under persecution or tribulation is said to stay under it, hold up, bear up under it, and he says, your endurance is admirable. These things are important because truth is important. And there are many passages which I won't uh, illumine now. Many passages. Well, let me give you just a couple of passages. For example, um, we're told in 1 Corinthians 13.29... First uh, Thessalonians 5, 20 and 21. 1 John 4, verses 1 through 3. Uh, that were to test the spirits. Uh, uh, in fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul describes the kind of behavior, the uh, conduct of the worship service when we all gather together, 
Back then they had prophets. People would stand up and prophesy. He says, let two or three prophesy. But he says, weigh what they have to say very carefully. And in 1 Thessalonians, he says, don't revile or despise prophecy. So there's a balance there. But what these passages and others, and just as in this situation, they listened, they respected it, but they tested it too. In 1 John uh, In 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and also in, in his letters, the, the ultimate test is whether uh, people will profess that Jesus is the Messiah who has come in the flesh. So there are some very central things that are emphasized. Why is this important to us? Because your faith will die if it doesn't have a clear focus that is solid, that is real. Your faith can be invested in all kinds of false things. Did you realize that? Sometimes we think faith is exclusive. It's a, a special word that applies only to Jesus Christ. That's not true. Every person has faith, but where you put your faith, that makes a difference in how you live your life. Think about what I just said. Where you put your faith makes a difference in how you live your life. You can put your faith in a bottle. You can put your faith in a teacher at school. You can put your faith in some friends. So much so that in life you can disobey, dishonor, disrespect your parents because you put your faith in some friends that matter more to you than your parents. Now that's a very simple example of what happens when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, come in the flesh. And that's important because the incarnation emphasizes that God sent Jesus Christ. And in his full identification with us in our humanity. We have a Redeemer who understands who we are. And in his own life on the cross, he bears a redemptive work that truly redeems us. I mean, you can have great confidence in that because of who Jesus is. And because of that what we call incarnation or in the flesh existence among us. When he is raised from the dead, we have definitive confidence that we have conquered death in Jesus Christ. And we celebrate that in baptism when we are buried and raised to newness of life. It's so important to put your emphasis, your faith in Jesus. He reveals God. He is the revelation of Scripture. In Scripture, He is the revelation of God, like no other can reveal. The New Testament writers point to Jesus Christ because He reveals the Father. He reveals God. And I can say perfectly, because there's no higher, there's no greater, there's no other 
revelation that compares to what we learn of God and God's heart, God's intent, God's purpose, God's plan, and God's hope for us in Jesus Christ. If you are not changed by Him, then this all becomes a rather superficial, artificial thing. It will become real to you as you put your faith in Him and you trust Him through difficult times, through confusing times, through times of doubt. That's why doctrine or truth or what we teach about the truth, doctrine, is so important. What is important in this truth beside Jesus Christ? What is important in the Bible that we should understand? I have against you that, he says, you've lost the love you had at first. What's that first love? I believe it is I'm just going to tell you after lots of thought, lots of study, lots of reflection, lots of reading, I'm going to tell you what I think. I believe that that first love refers to the great commandment. Love of God, love of neighbor. Now, when I came to Christ, the, the thing that drew me is this great message. God loves, God loves you, John. And that was the first thing I accepted. God loves me. But because I accepted his love, the New Testament tells us again and again, love God. Love God like he loves you. That wasn't hard because his love mattered right from the beginning. So he loved me, I love him. But the more I love him, the more he tells me, love others. Be a neighbor, a good neighbor, to others. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then something remarkable is said to us. And by the way, just if you, if you search it out, let me do say this. In 1 John 2, 7 through 11, and in 2 John 5, the expression is, there's a new, I'm going to put it in my own words, there is a command, the, obey the command. The command is old. It's from old. It's not new. And then it'll turn around and say, but it's new in him. What's that mean? The Deuteronomy 6.5 is the, is the heart and soul of Israel and God's work with his people. Love the Lord your God. Hear, O Israel, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And then they cited uh, Leviticus 19.18, love your neighbor as yourself. Okay, together that becomes the great commandment. That was the yoke of Jesus when he taught, and it was central to him. That's the old commandment. And then when, when John says it was old, it's of old, but it's new, and it's new in Christ. It is that that great provision of love has been given completely new life and new, what I would say, dimension and scope in Jesus Christ because of what Jesus Christ has done.
It's not just the old. It is of old. It's been there all along. Continue to do it. But it's new in Christ, and I think we have to understand and appreciate that. Love was the hallmark of Christ's teaching. It was the signal to the world. It signified that we were his disciples when we love one another. So love one another is the hallmark. And the Ephesian church here, Jesus says, you are great. You're strong in heresy hunting, but you're weak in love. Can we be right and be wrong? I think that's what he's saying here. You're right. I commend that. Your works, I see them. But you're wrong in that you don't have love that matches it. That's the thrust. In fact, it's interesting to me how the sequence goes because it goes in verse 4. I have this against you. You've lost the love that you had at first. And then he says, verse 5, repent, turn back to that love. And then in verse 6, it says, you have this, that you hate the works of the Nicolaitans. We'll pick up the Nicolaitans because they'll occur in another message later. But they're a heresy or false. He says, you have this, you hate the Nicolaitans. And it says literally, I do too. I hate their works. And then it stops. Why do you think that sequence? I just have a feeling, and I can't prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt, but here you go. You're great at heresy hunting. You hate what I hate, but do you love what I love? Your love is weak, but do you love what I love? In other words, and I'm going to spell it out, you hate their works, but do you love the sinner? It's interesting to me that in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses uh, 3 through 7, when you get to verse 5, all around it, Paul says, Paul says, I'm on my way to Macedonia. Timothy, I'm going to leave you in, in Ephesus, in this very church. I'm going to leave you in Ephesus. And he talks about false teachings. He says, I want you to go to them, Timothy, and tell them to quit teaching these false teachings and getting caught up in endless genealogies and so forth. But then he says to Timothy, Timothy, verse 5, this is a great verse. You should all commit it to memory. He says, the goal of our instruction. In other words, what's your objective, Timothy, in calling up these people to resist wrong doctrine? What's the goal? Is it to be angry, to be bitter, to become ugly, to threaten, to insult? No, he says, the goal of our, lo of our instruction is love. What kind of love? Then he amplifies. Love from a pure heart, a good or clear conscience, and a 
unhypocritical faith. Literally, it says unhypocritical. We translate it sincere or genuine or authentic. Is that too much? Jesus was characterized, his love was characterized by enemy love. Remember, we looked briefly at Luke chapter 6, verse 27 through 36. If you have your Bible open, let's look at it real quick. Luke 6, 27. Let me show you verse 27. We're just going to look at the first and the last verse of that section. But I say to you who hear, interesting, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Then he goes on to say, you know, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, if anyone strikes you on the cheek. Now jump down to verse 35. In other words, this is what's called an inclusio, where you, be, you begin and end with similar language. It's a way of rounding it all and making a strong point. Notice what he says, uh, verse uh, 35. But love your enemies and do good, and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward, here's an incentive, your reward will be great. This whole section is about love. In fact, Jesus said to those who would want to be his disciples, you can't be my disciples unless you're able to love like I love, and I love like my Father in heaven, the Most High loves. If you could get that, because he, even in this passage, you got to read it. In this passage, he says, if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? If you lend to those who lend, you got it? So notice, the first incentive, your reward will be, late, will be great. Why? Because love doesn't always come out on top. Love doesn't get rich. Love is not recompensed. Love suffers hurt, rejection. It suffers. Your reward will be great if you love like this. And then notice the second thing, you will be sons of the Most High. That is, just like when it says uh, the sons of thunder or Barnabas in Acts is called uh, the son of encouragement. In other words, it's an expression that says you're a chip off the old block. You will actually be acting like your father in heaven. So you will be called his sons. People will see in you your pedigree, your heritage, your childness, of the Father, that you are His offspring and not someone else's. Now, look at the last part. This is so important. He says, uh, for He, that's like for, the word for means here's the explanation. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And the last verse, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. There was a lawyer of the law who 
was, you know, they're nitpicky about saying and doing all the right things and being true to the word. So, in other words, they're like theologians. And this lawyer of the Torah or law came to Jesus in Luke, we read about it, chapter 10, verse 25, and he said, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, if, you're, if you inherit eternal life, then you're a winner, right? You've done everything right. You're on the side of right. So he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you're a lawyer. What does the law, literally, what does the law say? And you know what he said? He said, love the Lord your God. And then he added Leviticus 19.8, and your neighbor is yourself. And Jesus said, aha, good for you. Do that. And Jesus turned to leave. And the lawyer said, uh, question, who's my neighbor? So Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. And do you remember what happens? See, we stop at the end of that story, but do you remember what happened after Jesus ended the story? Jesus turns to the lawyer and he says, who was the neighbor? Well, there was a priest and a Levite, and there was a Samaritan. The enemy, the enemy of the Jews, they, they didn't have the right theology. They didn't. They didn't believe the whole word. They were all messed up. They're, you know, they're that church down the road that we would never have anything to do with. And worse, they were political rivals. They're the Democrats, or if you're a Democrat, they're the Republicans. That's who the Samaritan was. And the lawyer of the law said, the one who showed mercy. He couldn't even say the word, the Samaritan. Where do you draw the boundaries on love? That's the issue here. Jesus says there are no boundaries because God's love is boundless. I know that's hard. I struggle with it all the time. But here's the thing. If you love as God is constantly stretching us to love, and every day I fail, every day I fall short of his love, but because I keep pushing, my faith in God grows. Do I react? Oh, my goodness, I get on the freeway and, you know, or in the parking lot or in the grocery store, or everywhere we go. People are annoying. <laughs> so I'm not always on my game, but I catch myself more quickly. And yet, what? even if you fail, it's better to fail and know you failed than to exclude and say, I don't have to love you because you are the enemy. And Jesus said, there are no enemies. That's the hard part. Not in, under your roof, not at work, not at the grocery store, not on the other side of the political aisle, not over in that country, not in the news. And why? 
because Jesus Christ died on the cross and that keeps us constantly looking to the redemptive work of God in the lives of people we don't expect him to work. And Paul says, I'm the guy that he did that with And that's why Paul also chimes in in all of this, just like Jesus saying, love does no wrong to its neighbor. There's no one we shouldn't love in Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you agree, but don't be a heresy hunter or a fault finder and think that because you find heresy or fault or something like that, that that alleviates us of the necessity to love others in Jesus Christ. And it is through that pursuit that we will learn to pray for our enemies and bless those who curse us, and it will prepare us for the day that we can't live in the extreme air-conditioned, temperature-controlled lives that we lead every day in this country with running water and poop that we can flush down the toilet. Wait till you have to dig a trench and deal with it. You'll appreciate how easy that is. But here's my point, folks. It's going to end someday, maybe not in our lifetime. We're praying for our children and our grandchildren because it may be in their day. It may yet be in your day. Will you be able to stand up to the persecution to the tribulation, or will you just look like the rest of the people running through the streets? Will you look like Jesus Christ in the midst of those troubles and trials? I commend to you this thought. Loving him and loving those who hate you will prepare your heart to stand with noble endurance and focus of heart under trials such as those. But it won't if we're just floating along with the culture. We'll be the saddest and the most hurt by the changes in this world if we're embracing that culture instead of Jesus Christ.